write me down. It says this meeting is being recorded. I got it. Okay. No big deal. Um, my name's Mike Shane. I'm an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety dates April Fool's Day, 1975. Um, it's so funny to see Charlie down here. It's been years. I knew him quite well <clears throat> back in the day. And he and I have both had the privilege of getting old in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Look at all his gray hair or no hair, I should say. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've been sober a long time. And, and when I get asked to speak, whether it's a convention or something like this, I love these little roundtable kind of things. I think they're great. Um, you, you know, the problem is, is that I've had a lot of experience, so I'm not quite sure which way I want to go with it. But I guess we'll just start. And if I go off the tracks, just Charlie will kick me back on. Um, <clears throat> I was born into an alcoholic family uh, in Wisconsin uh, and um, uh, learned to drink there. You know, I mean, beer in Wisconsin is just part of the four basic food groups. And, and uh, you know, I got sips from day one. And, you know, that's the way it was. Uh, my father was a, a real mean alcoholic. And, you know, he was one of those Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of guys. And um, I was actually speaking at a meeting, believe it or not, I haven't done this hardly at all for a, since the pandemic started, but today I was speaking at a Zoom meeting in New Zealand on, on um, uh, steps 10 and 11, and we were talking about the the necessity of, of doing my morning prayers and meditation before I even get out of bed. And it really hit me that from the time I was like, I don't remember how old, maybe three, four, five years old, I always woke up scared. You know, I was always a scared kid. There was always craziness going on. There was always screaming and yelling. You never knew what you were walking out of your bedroom into. Uh, so that's the way I grew up. And and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Drunkalog, but um, you know, I was 13 years old and I went to this junior high school dance and uh, this kid brought a pint of whiskey with him. And this is in Wisconsin. Now, I, I realize you people down south don't know what freezing temperatures are. I'm, I'm well aware of that. But uh, Madison, Wisconsin in February, it gets a little chilly. I think it was around 10, 15 below or something like that. And uh, uh, this kid brought this pint of whiskey. So we go out in this snowstorm out behind the junior high school. And he takes a swig and he gives me a swig. And I take a good swig of it. And I hate it. Oh, it burned all the way down. It was absolutely the worst thing I'd ever tasted in my life. I gave it back to him and he and I are chatting for a little while and all of a sudden this warm feeling came over me, man. This warm feeling came over me and and this, this, this thing deep down inside, which I couldn't have told you this until after I was sober for a while, but this fear went away and this utter loneliness, this 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 thing inside of me that made me different than everybody else just just went away. It was like magic. It was it was a miracle. 
And I think he had two swigs and I drank the rest of it. And that night I got drunk. I walked right into the junior high school dance and I don't know what it's like today, but back then nobody danced. I mean, the girls were on one side of the room and the boys were on the other and nobody danced. Um, and I walked right up to the girl that I liked and asked her to dance. And I became just, you know, a man that night with alcohol. And they found me at two o'clock in the morning out in the field behind the school uh, and grabbed me and got me home, right? And my father, who, as I have already told you, was a, a real drinking, just just a hard drinking drunk every night, about a fifth of whiskey. He used to drink this crap called Four Roses. I think it was the worst stuff that God ever created. And uh, I got home and he goes, where have you been? And of course, I was staggering all over the place. And he looked at me and he said, well, if you're going to drink, drink like a man kind of thing, you know, and he started shoving whiskey in glasses and forcing me to drink. And and I'm throwing up and the whole thing. And he threw me in my room and he said, now I know you'll never do that again. And I remember laying there going, I can't wait until I can get away from this and go do that again. Because whiskey became my medicine. Whiskey became everything. And you know, the big book has an interesting way of presenting it. You know, we go through the doctor's opinion and and Bill's story, and I love Bill's story, but it, it, the first paragraph, and I can't, I can't uh, paraphrase it exactly, but the first paragraph, and we agnostic says, <clears throat> if you, if you, when you start drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, right? Or you can't stay off. No matter what then they, it, it says you're probably alcoholic. I think it's the way it's worded. And um, um, it's an interesting thing because either or makes you an alcoholic. Now, here's what happened to me. I had, I lost control from the time I first started to drink and I couldn't wait to get back out there and drink again. I could not wait. But I could hold off for a long time. And it wasn't until I went in the military that I lost that, where alcohol became the number one thing in my life. And, and the interesting part of that was, and I didn't see this until I was sober for, for a while, that all my decisions after at that time at 13 years old was all about drinking. It was all about who I hung out with. I didn't hang out with you if you didn't drink. I didn't date girls that didn't drink. I mean, her party. I mean, it was just, it, it just took over my life. And so anyway, to make a long story short, I was put in a boy's home when I was 15. And I was in there and we found alcohol. There was like 25 of us guys in there. And we found alcohol and we'd, we'd sneak out at night and we'd go get drunk. And uh, uh, we'd have people bringing whiskey into the boy's home back in this field. It was way up in northern Wisconsin, you know, and it was like uh, they had an old night watchman there who was about 80. And uh, so he'd fall asleep and we'd sneak out and go get drunk. And and that's the way my life, that's the way my life was. And I think the only thing that got me through through school 
was the fact that I was an athlete and I was a jock and I was big. Uh, I'm like six four, and and back in in high school I weighed two hundred and twenty pounds and and the whole thing and and so that got me through. And uh, uh, but after high school it was right in the middle of the '60s and the draft was on top of everybody. And so my best friend and I, we went down and, and joined the army together um, because we knew we were going to get drafted. And uh, it was a real crazy time back then. Um, uh, I can look at most of you uh, and, and realize that you have no idea. This is to some of you, this is ancient history. But uh, uh, it was a real crazy time back then. Um, not so different than it is today, actually, in some ways. And, you know, so um, I went in the military and I'll, I'll make it real short. I went to Vietnam and it, it, was a, it was a fog. It was just a fog. It was, it was booze. I got introduced to drugs. This Wisconsin kid got, got shown what drugs will do for you. And I personally did a lot of drugs just so I could drink and not pass out or get crazy or, or whatever. And I learned to do that. And when I came back from, I'll tell you how much alcohol had taken over my, my life, actually. When we got back, um, there was three of us who were good friends that survived, and we got back. And uh, uh, they discharged us from the Oakland Army. I had gotten in some trouble, so they had ripped all my stripes off. So uh, I, got, I was lucky to get out without any major repercussions. And um, we went to downtown San Francisco. And back in, 90, this was 69, 1969. And uh, uh, we went on a bender. We just went on a bender. And I remember standing in this area called the Tenderloin District in downtown San Francisco. And we're, we're down there and we're broke. We're dead broke. We don't know how we're going to survive. We don't know how to pay the hotel room another night. We don't know anything. And all of a sudden, this guy comes out of this club, this, this, this bar, and he goes, um, the bartender didn't show up or something of that sort. He looked at us. He says, we're not going to be able to open we we're standing outside of this bar to go in and, and and get our morning drinks and i said well i know how to tend bar you know and uh, i had never tended bar a day in my life um but anyway he gave me the job and walked in there and that led to um a few years of absolute insanity in san francisco attending bar i ended up going up to north beach where all the strip clubs were at the time and you see, the reason I bring that up isn't so much because I did it. It's this. Sane people get out of the military and use their GI Bill to go to college or build a career or do something. I had no intention to do any of that. It was a party. It was I had the mentality already uh, that I'm not going to live past 30. I might just as well go for it and die behind this thing. And that's where my mentality was. Um, I was a, um, I drank, uh, I did massive amount of drugs in, in the Bay Area. Um, I got arrested for assault to a police officer. I mean, it got absolute insanity and craziness. And I did so many things that 
that I can't make amends for so many things. I mean, there's no way for me to find those people that I'd hurt and, uh, and things that I did looking back on it today. Um, I did go back there and turn myself into the police department when I made amends because my sponsor told me I had to, um, you know, but I mean, it was a crazy time. So let me, let me fast forward. Um, I got to Denver on a geographic. Um, actually, the head stripper in the club I worked in, her and I fell in love. It was, it was a relationship made in heaven. And uh, she was from Denver, Colorado. And that's how I got to Denver. Um, we just, you know, San Francisco was killing me. And, and I said, we got to get out of here. And got to Denver and, and stayed with her parents. And I got some bartender gigs and, and uh, we moved out. And my drinking just got worse because I didn't have any drug connections whatsoever in Denver. And, and it, that was fine. It, it didn't really bother me as long as I had my booze. And so we were in Denver and she got pregnant and, um, you know, I just realized when she told me that she was pregnant, that this kid just didn't have a shot. She was a drunk I was a drunk and I had no idea. I had no way of, of beating this game, you know. By the time I'd gotten to Denver and I was in my mid-20s, I already was unemployable. I already was fighting the drink on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, you know, I was already getting up every morning going, I can't do this anymore. And when she told me she was pregnant, there was something deep down inside of me that said, something's got to change, buddy. And I didn't know what that was. You know, back then, AA wasn't around like it is today. Today, every TV show has somebody in sobriety. You hear about it on TikTok now. I couldn't believe it on TikTok, right? Yeah, I do. I'm an old guy, but I do TikToks. Okay, I mean, I'm I'm cool. I, I really am. I'm cool. I've ridden Harleys for years, and and the whole nine yards. And the social media, as much as I dislike it, I like it. You know, it's sort of that guilty pleasure of mine, right? Um, anyway, uh, I had gone out on this bender, and uh, I remember I, I had gone out, and I had this job. And she told me that the rent was due the next day. And I had gone out on this bender. And I came home at three in the morning, whatever it was. I, I have no idea. And she said something to me. And I said something nasty to her. I don't even remember what it was. And the next thing I know is I saw the biggest rolling pin you have ever seen in your entire life coming directly down into my head. And she hit me in the head and she kept hitting me in the head. And she said, you dirty alcoholic, you've taken me down further than anybody ever could. And I'm laying on the floor of this place that we were living in and I'm bleeding all over the place. And she grabbed my one-year-old daughter 
And she called her mother who lived up the street and she left. And I'm laying there and I I, I gotta tell you, I, I, I'm one, okay, you may call me nuts, but I really believe that God watches over us through our bad times, our good times, our drinking times, everything. Because I believe me, I have been in so many situations where I should have been dead at 25. I mean, I'm not kidding you. And all of a sudden, I got this picture of this me as this kid. And I wanted to be a baseball player. I mean, I was, you know, six, seven years old. And then I got this picture of me in my 20s, drinking and, and craziness and insanity. And then I got this picture in my head. And these were vivid. I'm sure I was knocked out. I'm sure that's really what happened. But this is what happened to me. This is what I remember. What happened was all of a sudden I got this picture of me and there's this grave and nobody's there. Nobody. Because I'll tell you, by the time I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, there wasn't one person that gave a shit whether I lived or died. There really wasn't, including my parents. I was not close to my parents. I didn't talk to my parents for years. Um, you know, I heard everybody around me. Uh, so when I hear all of this stuff, I'm sorry, I'm sober long enough to where you get my opinion on a few things too. Because um, <laughs> I really don't care. Um, that's my story and and many, many, many people's stories that I've worked with, helped, been around, when I hear that we're a victim of some outside force. And what I'm hearing around the world today is my addiction. My addiction did this to me. No, I did this. I did this. And until I'm willing to accept responsibility for my life as it is today, I have no hope to recover. And I'm laying on this floor, back to back to what happened was I'm laying on this floor and I'm keeping an eye on the clock because I really want to talk more about recovery than drinking. And I'm laying on this floor and I call Alcoholics Anonymous. Now I gotta tell you folks, we had no cell phones, okay? We didn't have that. This was a rotary dial phone. You called up and I got information and I said, Alcoholics Anonymous, is there, can you give me a number? And she said, oh, sure, I'll, I'll connect you. <laughs> I remember talking to this woman at Denver Central Office, her name was Peg, and I'm telling her my tale of woe, and she says, oh, that's okay, honey, none of us come in here because we've had such a good life. And she goes, she goes, let me get a, a guy to come over. Do you want to give me your address? And oh, oh, heavens forbid. No, no, no. I, I sort of figured that AA people, we didn't know what AA was. We had no idea what, what it was about, really. At least I didn't. I figured AA people would come over to my house with big AA t-shirts on and, you know, uh, you know, sort of try to pass on something to you you didn't want. 
But she gave me this name of this group, and this group was called Happy Way. And I went, oh, that's that's a really good name. Uh, that's a wonderful name. And to this day, I hate the name of that group. But um, my friend Bob Olson and I, we talk about it all the time, about how the, what a horrible group this is. Uh, name, name. It's a very good group today, not then. Um, and so the next day, I went to this meeting at Happy Way, and I was shaken. And by that time, I had I I, I weighed about 330, 35 pounds. I had quit. I just drank and ate. That's what I did. And uh, I was a big ball of blubber. And uh, I went to this meeting, and I remember walking in. This is in 1974. And I walked into this meeting and I had the same clothes on I'd had the day before. And I walked in and this, these people, it was all couches. Charlie knows this. And I walked over and I sat on this couch and this, this guy that was sitting on the couch, same couch, got up and moved to a different couch. And this lady came up to me and she goes, honey, we, we don't know how to help people like you. And I stayed for the meeting and it was a bunch of old guys, sort of like I am today, you know, like Charlie and I are today, but they never talked about anything. I scared the hell out of them. And here's something that I have learned since I've been sober. A group, an AA group, which I believe the group is as much of a sponsor as the sponsor is. I really and truly believe that. So if you're sponsoring people, you better have them into a good home group. But a good step working home group of people that know alcoholism, a guy like me doesn't scare them at all. But a group where nobody, they go there for the fellowship and frothy emotional appeal, right? A real drunk scares the hell out of them. They don't know what to do with them. They really don't. So anyway, I got the name of this place called 1311 York Street, and I ended up leaving that meeting, and I didn't want to quit drinking. I'm not blaming those people, believe me. And I basically went to a bar across the street, got drunk and drank off and on for six more months. And I went on this three-week bender and I ended up coming off a three-week binge. And I'm shaking. And I decided to go down to this place called 1311 York Street. Now, I'd been to a few meetings in that time. And people like to talk to new drunks, you know. Um, but I was really, I had just gotten beat up. I had just gotten mugged on the street. I had 16 stitches in my head, two black eyes, a busted nose, and weighed about 330 pounds. And I went down to York Street at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm sitting at this table down at York Street. And this woman, she says, come here, honey, go sit down over here. They used to call you honey a lot back then. And 
I went over there and I'm sitting at this table. It was really dead. There was hardly anybody there. There was a kitchen in the back and I could smell the food coming out and the coffee. And this guy walks in and he's about six foot nine and he weighs about 350 pounds and he's got a palm ball hanging out of his mouth and he's got plumber butt. And I remember he comes walking in and I'm sick. I don't want to talk to a soul. I don't want to talk to anybody. And he comes walking over and he sits down directly across from me and he puts his hand, head on his hand like this and stares at me. And he says, you're screwed and got up and walked away. Now, he didn't say screwed. I'm trying to keep it clean. OK. And. He was totally different than everybody that I had ever met. Everybody I'd met in AA would come up to you and go keep coming back and doing all this shit. And he tells me I'm screwed, gets up and walks into the kitchen and he walks into the kitchen and here's what he does. He comes walking out of the kitchen. He's got this great big styrofoam cup <clears throat> with orange juice and honey in it. And he puts it down in front of me. And he says, you drink this and you're going to feel better. It's going to help you get through this. And then here's what he did. He did something that, that, that meant more to me at that time than anything I can even imagine. He put a straw in it. And he moved it toward me because he knew I couldn't pick that thing up and get it to my mouth. He knew I had to bend over and drink it. That man took me home, put me on his couch. I went through DTs. He ended up becoming my sponsor sometime down the road. And I'm so grateful for that because here's what that the group of people that he was associated with did was once I got clear enough and had my mind cleared up a little bit after a couple of weeks, I craved a drink for about a good four or five months. It didn't leave me right away. And I was dead broke. And these people fed me and they let me sleep on their couch and uh, he'd have his people from his group come over and watch me and make sure that I didn't die. And these people would come up and go, you got to get him in the hospital. And he'd go, nah, he says, he don't need that. Getting sober ain't supposed to be easy. And I mean, this guy was, was for real. Okay. And he ended up becoming my sponsor and I'll never forget, I was, I could have been three weeks sober. I could have been a month sober. I have absolutely no idea. Um, I ended up, uh, <clears throat> sorry, that's my bull mastiff up there doing something. Um, I ended up, I was sitting on the front porch of York Street, and I remember this thing hit me in my gut that, that, I heard about this first step, and this was this was in April of 1975, and I, I'd been hearing people talking about this first step, and and it hit me deep down in my gut that all I'm ever going to do is drink again. That's all I'm going to do. That's all the first step tells me I'm going to do is I'm going to drink, and I'm going to die an ugly death. That's it. You know, it doesn't have any recovery at all in the first step. And I remember walking back into York Street and I sat down with him and I said, Frank, can you help me? And he said, are you asking me to be your sponsor? Because back in those days, nobody volunteered to be your sponsor. You had to ask. 
They truly believe that that was a door opening of humility when you ask somebody for help, not this, I'll be your sponsor and pat you on the back bullshit that I see so much in the meetings today. Well, I can't stop it. Swear a little bit. Anyway, um, here's what he did. He pulled out the big book and he went to the page with this 12 steps on it and he read every single step and told me exactly what I had to do in every single step. And if I agreed to that, he would be my sponsor. He also said, I will walk beside you to hell and back if you're willing to do this. But if you don't want to do this, don't waste my time. And he put the responsibility of my sobriety directly on my shoulders. It wasn't on anybody else's shoulders. And there were some guys there. Uh, Charlie knew, I think he knew George Burke and, and uh, Bob Olson and a whole lot of those guys uh, were all there at the time. And they took care of me, you know, and I, I wasn't used to that. And, and these guys work steps. And these guys would, they'd get you involved in a home group, which I think is essential. I have a home group. I've always had a home group uh, my entire time in Alcoholics Anonymous. They've changed, but I've always had a home group. And uh, the reason I say I think that the group is as much of a sponsor as uh, the sponsor is, is because when you're, you know, when the sponsor is, is, you're you're meeting with your sponsor and you're you're talking to him about doing something, but you need to go to those other people that are working steps. I'll never forget my good buddy of mine, Bob O. He had to make some amends, and I I ended up getting to amends, and I had some horrible. I had I had to turn myself in on felony warrants and and all kinds of things. And and I said to my sponsor, I said, "Man, this scares the hell out of me." And he says, "Well, you said you're willing to go to any lengths." And uh, I had also tended bar in San Francisco for the mob, and I had stolen a lot of money from them. Uh, I, it wasn't some big heist or anything like that. It was just at the end of the night, I'd take 100 or 200 or whatever I needed and stick it in my pocket and walk out. And he said, you've got to go make amends for that. I said, there is no way I am going to go make amends for it. There is no way. You don't walk out of that. No way. He said, there's neither a God or there isn't. <laughs> and I didn't believe it. Believe me. I, I had no faith at that time. Um, you know, it's too bad. I I, I don't want to run over, uh, you know, because one thing I do want to mention about God is it talks about coming to believe. And I, I'm a firm believer that pain is a touchstone of growth. It has been in my in my sobriety. When I get hurting bad enough, I'm willing to grow and open my mind up to some different concepts and ideas. And the idea of God, I'm a Vietnam vet and I did not believe in God, nor if there was a God, he would not have anything to do with a guy like me. You know, I mean, I really and truly believe that also. Uh, but then I looked around Alcoholics Anonymous and there's these people in my group who had done things just like I'd done or just as bad or worse. And they're telling me there's a God. So, you know, maybe there is a God. And I ended up uh, making amends for, uh, turned myself into the San Francisco Police Department. Uh, I ended up making amends. I didn't go to jail. I, to this day, I, 
I, I do know how it got worked out, but um, I made amends for stealing the money and I came back to Denver, Colorado. Um, you know, here's here's the deal. You know, for years, we do around here, we do these big book workshops where we're extremely, um, we're extremely huge on sponsorship. Uh, we're huge on working the steps out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to talk for a minute. Why is that? There seems to be a whole lot of answers for all these other things. But, you know, why do I work the 12 steps out of the book on a continuous basis, even though today my life is good? And the reason is, is that I need the same spiritual experience today as I did when I sobered up. The same one. I had a sponsor for a while. His name was Paul Martin. He died with 62 years of sobriety. And actually, he he used to sit. He, he sobered up in New York in 1940 or 41. And he used to sit in Bill and Lois's um living room all the time because he was a professional wrestler when he sobered up and Lois Wilson was a huge wrestling fanatic. So they made sure that they uh, brought him over for dinner. She told Bill, you got to bring him over for dinner. And so he knew Bill really well and he knew Lois really well. And, and, and here's what happened is he said, I always thought I had to tough this thing out. I always thought I had to be a better man. I always thought I had to be more moral. I always thought that what I had deep down inside wasn't good enough. When the truth of Alcoholics Anonymous is none of us have that. What we end up coming in here for is working the steps, cleaning up our life, and allowing God to change us and protect us. See, I can know all my triggers, but that's not going to keep me from drinking. I need a God that's going to keep me from drinking. I need a power so much bigger than me that's going to keep me from drinking. You know? Um, so, you know, my home group is Sunday morning. As For now, it's a hybrid meeting. I don't know how much longer that's going to be. But uh, uh, it's it's it taken out of the book. Uh, I go to a couple of meetings. I don't go to as many as I used to go to. Uh, but I do hang around with a lot of people who have this common solution. Now, I'll tell you something I learned in AA also. And the book is so right about it. I, I can't paraphrase this stuff anymore. I used to, man, when I was five years sober, I could tell you page and 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 paragraph and the whole thing and and I can't really do that too much anymore, uh, but Alcoholics Anonymous just because you're an alcoholic doesn't doesn't form a bond with me. That doesn't do it. What forms a bond with me is are you willing to do the program that is designed in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous as it's written in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you don't know, I am more than happy to help you. I am more than happy to sponsor you. You know, I'm sort of a direct guy. 
there are a lot of people that pat on the back and there's a lot of people that want to love you till you can love yourself. I'm not that. I'm not that guy. That, that's not me. That's not who I am. You know, today, and it's so funny seeing Charlie sit there. I, I got to tell you, I mean, he goes way back with me. And uh, uh, when he left, uh, you know, we know a lot of the same people. But this thing is a real gift. What's my life like today? Well, it's an excellent life. I've lived far longer than I should have. Uh, I'm a blessed man. I do the steps on a regular basis, not every year, but on a regular basis. I do my prayers and meditation. I do these things because I know simple. It's really simple, folks. It works. It works better than anything I could have ever found, right? It works. Uh, I met a lady about 10 years ago who's, uh, I didn't date an AA for many years. Uh, I did it first. <laughs> I lost 125 pounds in my first year. And all of a sudden, a few girls wanted to go out with me. And I went, oh, my God. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, I did date in AA, uh, and, and, you know, I had a few relationships with a few different people in the program, but not much. Most of the time I dated outside of AA, but 10 years ago, I went and did a big book workshop out in California, met a lady and, and, uh, uh, I finally have a partner, you know? So for those of you that are sitting there going, well, I'm way past my prime. Uh, well, I was way past my prime. And trust me, I met this lady and, and her and I are partners and we're best friends. And, and uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a real pleasure. But at the same time, uh, God and AA are the number one priority in my life. Uh, my... Um, daughter, who I talked about, she was a year old when, when my first wife and I died, uh, when my first wife and I split, my wife, that wife ended up dying in a trailer park uh, on her own vomit. And my daughter, after being sober, she went to prison um, when she was 18 years old. And she ended up getting into Alcoholics Anonymous in prison, came out, had nine and a half years of sobriety, and her and I were best friends. Uh, she went back out, and 12 years later, she died of an overdose. Now, why do I bring that up at a meeting? I'm going to tell you why. Alcohol had me. I, th this is the blessing. We, the, the, the miracle of AA isn't that I haven't drank in 48 years. It's that I haven't wanted to drink in 47 and a half of those years. That's the miracle. When my daughter died, it was probably the worst thing that I could have ever imagined because for so many years, I ended up getting custody of her and, and raised her. And we're good friends, actually. We really were. She was a different kind of girl. And I liked that about her. I really liked that about her. And uh, But I got to tell you, I went through every single emotion that there is. I went through everything that 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 a human being can go through. But there was not one time that I thought about taking a drink. 
Not one. There wasn't one time I wanted a medication to calm my nerves. Not one. Because what I found at Alcoholics Anonymous, this God was with me. And God told me. I was crying. And I got mad at God. It's fine to get mad at God. God likes people to get mad at it. And I told God, why? Every day since she's been alive, I prayed that she be okay. And you do this to me? And I'm sober a long time when this happened. And I have to be honest with you. And you're going to think it's just old man disease or whatever. But I heard in bed, he said to me, she is safe and happy now. I got to trust that. I got to trust that. But this is what Alcoholics Anonymous gives me. This is my home office. You see this stuff back here. I, I still sell real estate. I have a beautiful home. I have trucks. I have motorcycles. I have all this stuff. But the beauty of my life came to me in a program I didn't want to be a part of. I didn't want to be here. And I am so grateful to the men and women. There were some real tough women at York Street when I sobered up, trust me. Who told me the truth about my life. They didn't pat me on the back. They told me the truth about my life. They told me a way to get out and they handed me a solution. And I bought into it. I bought into it. I hear people say a lot of times, and they mean well, but they say, I'm only sober by the grace of God. Well, that's true. Absolutely 100% true. But I also have to sign up for it. I don't believe that God loves me more than he loves that person laying on the street somewhere. I, I, I believe God loves both of us the same. I really and truly do. But I did sign up for it. And I've been surrounded by people that work this program of Alcoholics Anonymous and will are happy to share it and are willing to share it. And I could go on and on and on once I get wound up, but I'm not going to do that. You said go to about five till, so it's about seven till. Thank you for inviting me down. It's great to meet you. And it's fantastic to see my old, old buddy, Charlie, down there. We ought to hook up one of these days and chat on the phone or something. And thanks again. And that's all I've got today. Mike, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.